This is Up The Creek, the definitive Jonathan Creek podcast with your host, my good friend Daniel Krupa and me, Gav Murphy. Today, we're visiting B&Bs and solving our first locked room mystery. So in every episode of this podcast, we analyze Jonathan Creek via the effect, the method, and the reveal. Daniel, what is the effect of Jack in the Box? It's one of many locked room mysteries we're going to get in this series. I think it's actually the cleanest and tightest one of all of them. We've got Jack Holiday apparently committed suicide in a nuclear bunker he has under his house. I think the locked room ones, when you get those in a Jonathan Creek episode, those are the ones that, when you speak to people who haven't seen Jonathan Creek for a while, those are the ones they remember. They're like, oh yeah, remember that? Mrs. Holiday, we're 30 feet underground. You saw yourself how those doors were bolted on the inside. It's a simple physical fact. Nobody could possibly have killed your husband and then left this room. This is one that now and again, when I'm watching it back, I forget how it's done. And I think that's either a mark that it's good or really bad. <laughs> I think this is the one I remember most clearly. I remember doing this really tragic thing as a kid when I was out playing with my mates who didn't watch Jonathan Creek. I was like, I've got a puzzle for you. And I remember explaining to them the story. And I went, can you figure it out? <laughs> and obviously, I could, no way can I retell all the details required. And also, they were just, I think, completely nonplussed by the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you should watch it. You should watch it. You should watch it. Really strange as well, I think, because we get to meet Jack quite extensively. And I remember just thinking, <laughs> I thought he was a bit of a dick. He's a real dickhead to the director. Why take a Tonga <laughs> banana advert if you're just going to rip the piss out of it? But also as well, I really love the idea that he refers to, he says to the director, there isn't a laugh in the show. He's like, mate, it's an advert for a banana. It is not a show. You're not getting show work anymore, Jack, all right? I also hate that he unpicks the reality of slipping on a banana skin, but it's completely at ease of parking a bite between a woman's buttocks. <laughs> different time, mate. It was a different time. That is realistic. <laughs> there's some really funny bits that happen right at the beginning as well because uh so you see his arthritic hands so it's like setting all that up trying to pour himself a whiskey um but i really like his wife in this his wife in this makes me laugh so much uh there's an amazing bit where she comes in right at the beginning she's like that bad is it about the things like i'm afraid it gets worse <laughs> Like, that's not a way to introduce the, the murderer of your wife is being released from prison. I'm afraid it gets worse. Been drinking again, have you, Jack? <laughs> well, the arthritic hands makes it impossible because it's so severe. There's no way that he can pull a gun trigger, let alone turn the lever on the door, let alone turn the key on the outer door. As you say, like we then get this weird sort of little backstory in that the murderer of Jack Holiday's first wife has just is being released from prison at the time. Alan Rokesmith. Right, Alan Rokesmith. Yeah. In my head, he's exactly the same as Stephen Grismold. Yeah. It's the same actor. Such it's good names. It's good names. It's good names. Well, to be fair, I always thought I. It looks he looks like uh, the actor who plays the baddie in the Three Gamblers episode, like later on in Jonathan Creek. Like, I always confuse them to him. I was like, that's the same guy. That's the same guy. Um, so, yeah, and then we have that. So, basically... This guy is dead. No possible way of getting in there. But we also then have this weird thing of the, a man that he's tied to who has murdered his wife, um, well, he thought that murdered his wife, has now been released. Well, and, and this is the way into the episode. 
the whole investigation and the connection is through Maddie. Maddie, mm. doing her work, her original job as an investigative journalist, got um, Alan Rokesmith off after nine years in prison. Yeah. And then she ropes Jonathan in to investigate the yeah. whole thing just to ease her guilt. She's like, I really hope he didn't do it because he just got released <laughs> and Jack Holliday's dead. Jonathan, can you please help me? I think this is a thing that we kind of brought up in the first episode of this podcast was like, is she any good? Because <laughs> the more that this goes off, doesn't mean they're not guilty. <laughs> she very much, like the first episode, just gets a theory of whether someone's guilty or not in her head and just takes that as fact. She, I think she believes people as well because uh, we obviously find out Alan Rokesmith did kill, <laughs> did kill a wife. And he's like, because the way she sets it up is like, uh, he he couldn't have been Rokesmith. He was found with the cord, but it's circumstantial evidence. How can they put him away on that? It's like, yeah, but if you look at it from the other side. <laughs> also, when did a murder weapon become circumstantial evidence? <laughs> yeah. That's, he was just standing over her with it, that's all. Surely that's substantial evidence. Which brings us nicely on to the method. So, as we said, Alan Rokesmith did kill Jack Holiday's wife, but Holiday hired him to do it. But unfortunately, he got caught and got sent to jail. I mean, the response time on those police is insane. <laughs> yeah. They hear a scream and they're there instantly on him. <laughs> um. So... Rokesmith's been rotting away in jail uh, and harboring a bit of resentment for Jack. But also, I, I, I feel like if you take a job murdering someone mm. and then you get arrested for that murder, there is one person to blame for that. And it's not the person that hired you. It's you. <laughs> but also, you can't admit it. You can't go, he made me do it. Well, you still did it, though, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Alan Rokesmith <laughs> is a good hitman. Because they say he no. works as a sales rep, as a telecommunications yeah. company. I wonder if he just got bored one day and he was like... <laughs> I also just really like the idea of him being like, oh, I've just got caught for doing this murder. That's all your fault. It's like, it's your fault for doing the murder. Yeah, he did hire you. That's fair enough. But there's a lot of steps that happen between someone hiring you and you strangling a woman to death in an alleyway. Yeah, and there's a lot more <laughs> steps about then going to do a suicide framing murder where you then also kill yourself in the process. Yeah, because I, I guess like being in jail he decided that his life was over and now he's, he's going to make his life entirely about murdering Holiday and getting revenge. What I really like as well is, for some reason, it, rather than spend his life on the Welsh coast, he decides to brick himself up. So rather than live in Wales for the rest of his life, he's going to brick himself up inside a nuclear bunker. I take offence to that. I mean, you chose to read it that way. In my head, it's, that's how he's imagining heaven. Yeah, because that's mean. If I was Rokesmith getting out of prison, even if I had this idea of murdering him, if I went and spent even 30 seconds on the Welsh coast, I'd be like, ah, don't worry about it, actually. Also, the, when he comes home and he sees his sister and his mum for the first time, he says, almost reveals what he's going to do in the first line. Nine years staring at a wall. You do a lot of thinking. And he's going to do that forever now. Yeah. Because he, we should be more specific. He bricks himself up inside one of the interior walls in the bunker. Yeah. After just shooting Jack. So I guess like he has thought of this. You know, in all this time in prison, he's thought of this perfect crime, which is to murder him, make it look like a suicide, brick himself in, up inside of the wall. But unfortunately, 
he doesn't know about Jack's arthritis. Which is weird, because I feel like if you knew that he had a nuclear bunker, you'd know about his arthritis. What are you telling me? Jack Holliday needed a stuntman to peel a banana. He couldn't do anything with his hands. And if you're asking me if you could have turned a key in a lock, pulled a heavy lever on the back of a door, and then loaded a gun and emptied it into his head, I'd say not unless something very miraculous happened in the last two weeks of his life. That's one of the main things as well. It's like, why? Why would they do that? If someone was going to murder him, why would we just murder him in the living room? It's like, it's obviously, I guess they... Well, if you're going to frame it as suicide. Yeah, you just do it in the living room. But that's why they bring into the idea that he has been out of the picture for so long. He wouldn't have known about the arthritis. But how do we, so how do we get to the solution then? Well, there's a couple of little clues that Jonathan picks up um, along the way. One is he's immediately drawn to it that there's a 100-watt light bulb in a 40-watt packet inside the bunker, and he's obsessed with the lavatory toilet pipe. Because the nuclear bunker was never finished, so this massive toilet, they're really obsessed with this throne-like toilet, this huge toilet that Jack Halliday's built, like, bought for himself. Jonathan's just something about the toilet and he can't put his finger on it that just bugs him. Yeah, the light bulb thing always used to do my head in because I was like, why wouldn't he just take the box and the light bulb in with him? But why even leave that to chance? Just bring it. If no one's going to find you, no one's going to find the old light bulb. Just stick it behind you. Bring it with you in the wall. Well, it's a nice idea. Some of his execution is sloppy. I was stressing me out watching it last night when... Don't take the drugs until you finish bricking yourself up. Yeah. He just smashes them in the mouth. He drops one. Yeah. And then, he, uh, why put yourself under that time pressure? I know it'll be horrible yeah. waiting on the other side, but that's a big 30-minute job that to finish that, he said. Yeah, I feel like he's already made peace with the fact that he's not going to be in the mortal realm anymore. So, why just put yourself under this weird time pressure? Maybe gets gets the job done. The strange thing as well is the toilet... Because I, I remember things as a kid, but even now when I look at it, the way that they draw the toilet is not the shape of the toilet. So the toilet has the basin and then it has the pipe coming over the back. The way that Jonathan draws it around, he's like, oh, it would never fit there. But I was looking at it going like, I think it still would. I think what they're doing <laughs> is when you poo in a toilet, that doesn't go straight yeah. down a pipe into the ground. <laughs> But the drawing that Jonathan does on the floor, that I think that's what Jonathan thinks the toilet is. <laughs> he thinks it's just a latrine. He thinks toilet's a fancy funnel. Yeah, I th- that's the thing. I think this, as, as cool as it is, I-, I feel like there's a reason they don't drag that toilet over to actually show you. It's mad. Because it would, it would, they'd be like, oh no, it still works. So the pipe comes out on the back. Oh, you just get a bit of a U-bend and you extend it and yeah. Yeah. And that toilet does have this big old pipe thing coming down. They show it to you. Then there's the fudge letters. Yeah, the fudge letters are big. That's another big clue. There's my letters to him. There's your letters. There's his fudge orders from nine years ago. Yeah. One, are you allowed to order fudge when you're in prison? I don't know, man, actually. Like you've just arrived at prison. You've just been put away from murder. I want to put in an order. I feel like if you are, al- if, I feel like if you are allowed to order stuff... It would probably be through, like, the prison's own internal Argos catalogue or something. Yeah, not in 1988. Yeah, I don't think you can just... You can't Amazon stuff in, and you definitely can't reach out to local businesses and be like, fancy sending me some fudge. He's an influencer. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm pretty big on the inside. In, like, in E-Wing, you wouldn't believe. Like, if you give me some free fudge, 
you'll be giving you'll be supplying all of Ewing with fudge by the end of the week. Let me tell you, the name Alan Rokesmith could be synonymous with your fudge. <laughs> but the, fu- the, the 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 fudge thing is weird. Like, is that just a really bad coincidence that he doesn't like fudge? So the letters are from Jack Holiday to him. Yes, he doesn't know his research. He's just assumed who doesn't like fudge. That's a really really odd coincidence, isn't it? That is that out of everything that you've picked, the one thing that he hates hates as well is fudge. Like you cannot be into hate. His sister's like, hates fudge. They use those words frequently throughout this episode. He hated fudge, but then he writes uh, in underneath the stamp and puts that in there. But I feel like. If it's hard, because it's hard enough for Maddie and Jonathan to get that stamp off, and they had like the trappings of a lovely B and B, like a kettle and stuff. Has Rogesmith got access to a B and B to a to a kettle? And he's got them back on. The le- the stamps have stayed on again. Yeah, really odd. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that. I do like the epiphany, which also comes in the Airbnb when Jonathan steps out. It's weird, the weird Godfather scene. I hate it. With, with the melon. It makes me feel sick. It's a really small melon as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really small British melon. But after he steps out of the doorway, there's just this weird like Kubrick shining style shot where it just goes back and forth between Jonathan and the toilet. It freaks me out. Like, generally, I, I hate stuff like that. Anyway, like, I don't like, for some reason, anytime I watch, um, like, flashback sequences in films where there's always just something, like, odd and dreamy about it, like, they kind of, like, slow it down or they put a little vignette on it. But with this, it is, like, the shining. And they're just, like, doing this horror. It's the Danny shots where you're going with a snare. And they're doing this horror. The noise is really mad and the cuts are really horrible. His face is all crazy and wild. I, it really freaks me out that bit, then. I think also... It- it's coupled with a line that so often that happens. Maddie says a line and it sparks something in his mind. She says something about being too close. Yeah. And he obviously then realises about the pipe being too close to the wall. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the him shifting the light bulb just so the brickwork matches? Because they're the same bricks. It's been more a question of it being fresh, like the cement. Also, have you ever bricked anything up? Uh, just, just myself. So, yeah, because I've done brick stuff like that um on a garden wall is solid it is so hard to get it so it's all even and nice there's no like it's hard enough when you're doing it facing it front on to do it like with your hand reaching through a hole to do it you did more than a bulb to do that so you're saying it would be beyond a telecommunication (laughs) sales rep (laughs) quite possibly who's it could have been learning in prison yeah, he could have been learning that in prison, to be fair. They got good programs in prison. I think, like, sometimes you get this in Jonathan Creek, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, where it's quite clear that they're like, it's not meaty enough. So there's got to be another thing that, like, we need something else for Jonathan to find. And they've come up with, oh, well, actually, if it was a... It's not it's not mad, like, that you would, you would do it, but it doesn't work for this particular bricking thing, I don't think. I do think this is one where the clues are actually quite decent, though. I think if you were paying attention, there's enough going here that you can maybe figure this out. I think so, yeah. Because also, um, the first shot of Jonathan in this episode, and they revisit it at the end, the magic trick Jonathan is doing, God knows why he's doing that really simple magic trick on his own in his windmill, is the solution (laughs) to the episode. 
Yeah. The matches stay in the box. But that, that, to be fair, I, that is one thing that I do like about it and is quite nice is it, it's showing you that they are still basing this in the world of magic. It, there's a really, really nice moment as well, which is really prestige where um, Jonathan goes, well, it depends how ha- how bad his hands were. And like, we, we know from just magic history that there's loads of different characters that pretended to be something they weren't, like pretended to be Asian, pretended to be uh, disabled in order to make a trick work. And it's like, I love the seeding of that. It's so like simple and it's so small, but actually you go, oh, was he pretending this entire time? It is really strange with that bit though, because when the director is showing Maddie the edit, I don't understand how an investigative journalist is so shocked by video editing. She's like, what? And they've edited it to look like his hand. She's like, she's it's beyond the realm of possibilities for her. That's magic. I like the idea Maddie yeah. thinks everything's magic. Yeah. What? I also, um, when they're discussing it on the cliff, I love that Maddie's theory, which I've written down, he had some special tool that enabled him to pull the trigger, which was el- elastic. That's the last episode. Yeah. I wonder if this was written before. And then he's written that and he goes, actually... Trigger elastic. Let's get on that. But that's a th- I think it's I think it's intentionally done where it just shows that how lost Maddie would be without him. A lot of her stuff involves weird contraptions, and I think that's all because of Jonathan's uh, how he did the fir- like ex- explanation of how the first murder wasn't done in the first episode. So she, now she's just thinking everybody has access to telecommunications bugs and different contraptions and stuff all the time. Holiday locked himself in the bunker using some sort of lever or, or, or a device that he could operate with his crippled hands which he then dropped down the hole where the loo was going to go he had some special tool that enabled him to pull the trigger so we get that Kubrick-esque epiphany which brings us nicely on to the reveal and how Jonathan works it all out and brings it to the family and my, fav- my favourite bit about all this is when they like start to explain it the wife she's about to get explained to her how her husband was murdered and she just sits down on the toilet she's a bit bored she's like she's not like captivated she's like i'm gonna make myself comfortable actually yes have a seat mrs holiday it's not a bad sized lavatory that is it also it doesn't have a seat on it she's like balancing on the edge of a bowl <laughs> yeah that's how so she's like oh I can't be asked. that is me someone who just can't be asked listening to something for two minutes I also love um, the sense of drama let's do it in the bunker yeah absolutely we do it in the living room yeah <laughs> I think it's one of the best uh, measured out explanations like Jonathan second time doing it ever in his life absolutely owning the scene I think as well like when he's explaining it uh, <laughs> his wife says it's like the plot of one of his films she's like Wait, wasn't he in, like, big comedy slapstick films? Jack to a King. <laughs> Jungle Jack. <laughs> like, what film of his would add, like, a weird nuclear bunker locked room mystery murder to it? It's strange as well, because um, when they're showing you, when uh, Jonathan's talking, when they're showing you uh, how it happened, I feel like the shot that Rogesmith does, the shot of it, that doesn't look like suicide at all. We're straight in the middle of the head. Oh, that's why yeah. I commit suicide, just line it up. Like, not only would his arthritis hands not be able to pull the trigger, they definitely wouldn't be able to do it the way that that was shot. I I thought that was really, really strange. At what point 
do you think Rooksmith has taken him down there and go, oh, you've got really bad arthritis, haven't you? I've done a lot of prep. I've done a lot of prep work. <laughs> mm, I might just do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So that would go back to Wales. Like, because he's left it two weeks. And I feel like if you're going to do this, give him more than two weeks. Because that's not a lot of time at all. Because you, obviously, Jonathan even says at one point, oh, not the old uh, remains of a boat with no body thing. It's like it's only been two weeks. Like, already you've got to be casting doubt on it. Take the arthritis out of it. So we should say, before they reveal that um, Jack killed his wife and Rokesmith did this, they hypothesized as a third party that wanted to kill Jack's wife and wanted to kill Jack, but couldn't kill Jack while with Rokesmith in prison because that would then throw suspicion on a killer still at large. So they speculate that there's this other killer in play. But what happens in the end is quite, like in terms of narrative, very satisfying because both the bad people in this get their comeuppance. Yeah, no, that's true. In terms of, like we've said in last episode, I think this will be a big recurring theme of the police just being fucking rubbish. The police in Wales... I'm not having a go at Wales. But the police in Wales, they find the remains of the boat, no body, and they're just like, I'm really sorry, he's dead. I'm like, hang on, <laughs> you haven't found his body. You just assume, oh, I'm really sorry, no. You're gonna, are you going to look for it? No, because we found the boat. That's enough for us. The, the policeman who does that, he goes, um, they found you. They found the remains. Who? You, the police, or yeah. just somebody? <laughs> just some kids. It's fine. Also, like, he just appears in the house as well. Knock. Yeah, it just goes upstairs to it. What's like, as you say, like when they're building up this third party, you're obviously meant to suspect the driver. As soon as Jonathan starts talking, it goes straight on his face and he looks so shifty that so you think that he's involved, but actually he's just like, nah, he just told me. He got really hammered one day and told me, <laughs> told me it all. And you kept working for him, you know, you're a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he did the melon thing, which is a weird threat. With just a little pathetic letter saying, back off. If I was an investigative journalist, I would take that as a thing that I should keep going. Because imagine that and be like, I almost died mm. bringing this story to life. Um, that's what I'd be doing. But you're right, though. I think it is one of the best Creek reveals just because of the way that he goes through it. And also, it feels really satisfying by the end. Because, as we said in this episode, all the pieces are there. There's no flight of fancy that your mind has to do it's all there it's all been shown to you and also every time that it's shown to you in an episode every time the one of these clues is shown to you jonathan can't work it out and you can see him not be able to work it out which means that you're drawn to these clues even more because he says so many times in this episode why do i keep coming back to the toilet why do i keep coming back to the bulb yeah i think like the match but it's one of the most satisfying because it does feel like a magic trick solution when some of them definitely don't they, they almost start to be more elaborate like some of maddie's explanations this is a very elegant hidden compartment in a cabinet and it totally works doesn't work what do you mean it can't be baffling there's not enough scope for the imagination there's only one possible explanation the matches stay in the box and the duplicate drawer comes out like it did the killer had to be in that room because there's no way he could ever have got out. Okay, so as well as the effect, the method, and the reveal, we've had them, uh, but there are certain elements that make up every Jonathan Creek episode and make make the Jonathan Creek episodes really what it is, uh, starting with the thing that's dated the most in this. Uh, for me, is 
the freeze frame still ending. <laughs> like, that's something that's gone away, man. Like, a, a good freeze frame ending on someone. And this is it's especially cheesy as well, because it ends on a joke um, that he thinks he slipped on a banana peel. He's actually slipped on dog's mess. The way that Caroline Quentin, the way that Maddie reveals it to him is quite funny. And then he has this really awful fake smile, and it just freeze frames on him. I, like, I just absolutely love it. <laughs> I wish every episode ended like that. Not, not him sitting <laughs> on dog mess. <laughs> Yeah, just freeze frame. I feel like that, that, to be fair, it's a technique that's gone away. It's not used in uh, in films and TV. Yeah, just like big freeze frame ending. We should do like um, the very final series, just <laughs> like what they went on to do next. Yeah. <laughs> like the end of Stand By Me. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's really hard uh, to do freeze frame endings on podcasts, but we'll find a way. We've got a while yet to work out how to do it. Um, yeah, for me, that that's the that's what's dated the most. I think. What's yours? Fruit adverts. Don't often get adverts for fruit anymore. That's very true, actually. And I think you used to because there's some stuff that used to get advertised that doesn't, like sellotape. Mm. And I think fruit adverts is one. So there's a whole Tonga commercial for a brand of bananas. I don't think you would get that anymore. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I didn't think about. I didn't think about that. But yeah, it's very hard to do this section without sounding like crap stand up. Yeah, <laughs> Del Monte used to advertise when we were kids. Yeah, the man from Del Monte. I'm trying to think of other fruit now. It takes well over a year for a pineapple to reach perfect ripeness. The man from Del Monte knows that moment. The man from Del Monte says yes. He then insists the pineapples are picked and packed the same day. Say yes to the best, Del Monte. The most British thing. I've got I've got two, but I'm gonna go for the B and B. That is such a British quaint little B and B with the pub downstairs, gammon, egg and chips for dinner, then go up to a B and B with a barn door on it. That's oh I love that. Lots of good pubs in this series I've I've realized. Oh my god. Considering we're recording this uh during the COVID lockdown <laughs> and we can't go to pubs. There's so many pubs cropping up in these episodes that I just got There's one in the next episode that made me cry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I've stayed in hotels, motels, holiday inns and I've st- I've stayed in sort of local the what is the equivalent of a B&B in America and it's just never the same. It's not as charming. They don't they don't have barn doors for a start. Like those little barn door latches <laughs> which I don't think should be on uh, B&B doors but there we are. I mean it's not stopping Oliver and his melon. No, <laughs> exactly. Cuz I feel like those doors are the ones that you can just lift up the latch through the door like that's pretty easy yeah that's my that's my most british thing uh what's yours for this episode i've got a couple i've got a villain called alan yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes i like a villain called alan i think we should write down all the villains names and see what we've got at the end of this podcast i think it's gonna be good yeah cross and blackwell yeah i heard that he's making a cross and blackwell recipe (laughs) there's a shot of a hot water bottle which i liked in that's very british yeah do you have a hot water bottle? I don't know. I get bought one every Christmas by my mum and I can like safely say I've never used one. So somewhere in my flat, there's at least four hot water bottles at any one time. Just slumped over. Yeah, like, it's sad because they're not fulfilling their destiny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I debate whether to put this in another cat. I, I do think this is more British than anything else. 
Um, calling someone a cow. Yeah, don't often get that. Or when you do, if you get an American TV show or a film, you go, ah. In Mad Men last night, an episode I was watching, someone just goes, is this a wind-up? And I was like, that's such a British term. How is he saying that? And it felt it feels really out of place when you hear someone call someone else a cow. But <laughs> I love it. Also slapper. <laughs> slapper. <laughs> You know, this was recorded a long time ago. This this show was made a long time ago. So now and again, there's things that'll crop up that are not on. It just shows you a, a show can be self-aware and yet still fall prey to the prevailing attitudes of the time. So in the intro, the director does know what PC culture is. Yeah. They have a discussion about it. He says, oh, it's, it's just not right these days, but it's still not aware of what is doing that's not right, Gav. Yeah, so we're bringing it up every single episode. The thing that's maybe that's not on, um, I think... I think there's an outstanding candidate for this category. Also, I just want to point out, I'm putting it in this category, but I'm also saying it's still not right now, um, which is an old man proposing to a seven-year-old... <laughs> Seven-year-old. So I did the maths on this. Okay, so this episode is filmed in 1997. Let's assume that Jack Holiday is the age of the actor playing him. Yes. So John Bluthor was 68 at the time. Right. Which means he was born in 1929. They met on the set of Jack to a King. Yeah. Means he was 33 when he met her. <sighs> so he goes to the US for 15 years. So when they get married, she's 22 and he's 48. Yeah. 33 when he meets her. 33 proposing to a seven-year-old. And also, in one sense, oh, it's like a little sweet joke. He's kept in touch with her. Yeah. <laughs> also, if I was that, I'd be like looking in her, um, I'd be looking in her childhood bedroom, any letters from a fudge company, check underneath the stamps, absolute muck that he's writing underneath stamps. Because also, Oliver says, when he, he talks about um, how he found Rokesmith, he says, oh, Jack knew a lot of villains. And there's a shot in his house which pans down three photographs. One of him is next to a, a military leader. I don't know if that's meant to be one of the villains. But the top one is him next to a BBC radio presenter. Ooh. There you go, Gav. I'm just you know, leaving that there. Was Jack Holiday the, like one of the original U-Tree people? He's lucky he got off, if anything. Um, maybe this was... That's the thing. We've assumed that it was... Uh, it was Rogesmith getting his uh, own back. It's This could have been an entirely new plan. Jack was like, look, the writing's on the wall for me. You're out now. You're just loads of money that'll keep your sister and your mother in the riches they've become accustomed to <laughs> until they die. If you'll come and murder me again, I will make you look like a suicide. Come on. Come murder me, please. <laughs> Alan. <laughs> come on, Alan. I think that is the outstanding <laughs> candidate in this category in all future episodes. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, then. Shall we open up the grot cupboard? Think, I mean, we might have a similar one again, but Jack really, really pushing to park a bike up a girl's ass on a TV advert that's going to go out all the time. I, I feel like that's pretty grotty of him. So I, I watched that scene again. He says, comedy is about truth, about reality. <laughs> and that's the problem he has with slipping on a banana even though he specializes in slapstick. So him wanting that shot in breaches his own comedic principles. Why? Because he wants to do it. Yeah, that I think that sometimes truth and reality are trumped by the want for grot. The grot of an old man. 
Yeah. <laughs> the most powerful force on Earth. I really like... Um, it, it's kind of skirting on the area of the Grot cabinet, but it's... Um, when his wife is explaining about the trousers, I mean, like there's just something really odd about that. We're just like uh, when she's explaining how they were weighted, so they would drop at the exact right time. There's something quite grotty about that. I don't like. I know what you mean because he's just on set. Oh, they fell down. Oh, why are they down? Oh no, prop trousers. It's like his get out of jail card. Yeah. <laughs> I also like when his widow is explaining this to Jonathan. He could not give a shit. Yeah. He's so visibly bored, even by the engineering of it. He like kind of mugs her off about his whole career. He hates him. There's a there's a, a couple of times that it comes up. It comes in this episode. And it comes in a few other episodes as well, where Jonathan just doesn't care about making fun of the dead. Because there's a line in this where she says, "Oh yeah, it's like have you heard Jack Harley die? It's the only thing he's ever done that's made me laugh." It's like he's fucking just killed himself. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and then he says, "I don't suppose that will stop him overacting." <laughs> And then he says to his wife, really taking the piss, going, oh, a heritage of hilarity that will survive us all. Naughty, 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 naughty. Okay, we're going to close the Grot Cabinet and give you a romance update on Maddie and Jonathan. Because it's this second episode, it's still quite light. Well, my big question for you for this section is, how much time has passed, do you think? Yeah. How much time do you think is meant to have passed? I think it's a decent chunk. A few months at least. I think so, because of when he's wistfully looking out the window when they're on their way, and he says, I nearly rang you, and i get as far as the last digit, and then something would stop me. You don't think he was thinking of burning down the windmill? Yeah. He's kind of matches, going, I really hope she rings sometime soon. You assume that a lot of time has passed. In my head, it's, in my head canon, it's something like three or four months, maybe. Yeah, that would be quite nice. Because also, I love when he meets, um, when he's, he asks about, um, he goes, like, how's Trevor? Just seeing what the lay of the land is. How's Trevor? Who is immediately out of the picture in this episode. So he's moved out at least. So it's a decent amount of time. Yeah. And we know in the next episode, she has a spare room. There you go. I really like uh, that. That little car scene between them is really nice because I feel like they've got such a lovely chemistry together um, that is shown now. It kind of settles into what their relationship is going to become, which is kind of like, playful golden and it becomes like really a bit sarcastic and a bit silly you can see him realize this is what it's going to be when he's looking out the window and then he just goes stop this car and like he realizes that he's been tricked and it's like it's such a beautiful little moment i think he's more interested in her than the actual Mm. problems even though he finds them intellectually stimulating because he says he wants to ring her and he doesn't want to ring about the investigations he doesn't want them at all yeah that's so that's what that's literally what he says like i it, it was like i something would always stop me on the last digit probably for being roped into one a grisly murder uh thing. um my favorite scene in this though because the end of the first episode finishes them in the with them in a the hotel room and this one has a very similar parallel scene where they're in the b&b after the steam in the letters and he's too absorbed in the problem. Yeah. He doesn't see her. And she says, I'll say goodnight then. And he just goes, yep. And he's so absorbed, he doesn't even watch her leave. And instead of being annoyed by it, she has a little yes. smile, which is quite beautiful because it's what she loves about him. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's such a nice little detail that she smiles in the background because it'd be so easy to play her as like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's not. She just smiles and looks at him very happily. 
I, I noticed that as well because it would be so easy to do that because they do sometimes I think Maddie gets a bit of a yeah it gets too much for her sometimes it really does sometimes and I feel a bit sorry for her because there's a lot more to her that we see in moments like this where yeah rather than kick off about her and be like oh go off and a half she has this really lovely little smile and it's the same little smile from the first one where she's impressed with the model that he's built of the office and like it's that same little thing it's like it's so lovely I'll say goodnight then yeah. see you downstairs about eight They're at, they're at a B&B, you think? No, they're having pints. They're having some gammon before going to bed. Ah, oh, man. If you, you'd think, you know. Also, I'm really glad there wasn't a, uh, should we have two rooms or one sort of thing? Because in a, in, a in a bad show, in a bad sitcom, they've gone to get two rooms, but unfortunately there's only one room left. Um, do you know what I mean? And they're forced into that, but I'm glad that didn't happen here. Anytime you establish like something like this, obviously the parallel is um, Mulder and Scully. Yeah. You can't have them sleep together because then you just then have to deal with the fallout rather than the tension. Yes. So Renwick does a really good job of putting them in these scenes, but then figuring out solutions for it not to happen. And I guess like that's the really strange thing. Like Mulder and Scully feels are almost because they give you less in the X Files, which is odd because there's so many episodes compared to Jonathan Creek. Um, but they give you a lot less. So when you do get a tiny little thing, little nugget in Mulder and Scully, you go wild for it. Um, whereas this, there's there's a thing set up from the start where they talk about the facts. Yeah, they talk about it in few, they, they they're very aware of it. Yeah, that's in the first episode. But they never but you know, that that's why and that's why Jonathan Creek is better than the X Files. And most things. <laughs> On the next episode, we'll be learning why it's important to know your tracking shots from a pan in The Reconstituted Corpse. Up the Creek is produced by RKG. We make videos and podcasts about games, movies, basically anything fun, including 23-year-old BBC shows about a magician's assistant who lives in a windmill. If you'd like to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash RKG.